Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured, poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. This is the song, and this is the start of the song, and it starts with the chorus. Like It doesn't start at the beginning. It starts in the middle. Like There's no couple of verses just to warm us up to this. Bam, right into the chorus, and she's singing the loudest part of the song. Kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. Draw me after you. Let's run, she says. So we're not at the beginning of the love story. We're, we're at that moment when restraint is just thrown off and the lovers embrace and they run off to the chambers. That, that right there is the moment I spent all my teens and all my 20s waiting for. <laughs> that moment. The thing is, there is a lot that comes before, let us run. Before you enter anyone's chambers, there is a lot that comes before. But how do we get there? How do we get to that point? Let's find out. Verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Solomon wrote this, which is weird, because how could a song about love, dedicated exclusive love between one man and one woman be written by a man who had 700 wives. It's like this is the ultimate pickup line and it's worked for him very, very well. <laughs> it's like, lady friend here, just reach back for my harp. I'm going to play you a song. <clears throat> it's not like that. It's not like that. Um, there's an idea that it might have been written by him as a young man to his first and his truest love before things went horrible. But that makes this whole book really tragic, I think. Uh, it's more likely that Solomon wrote this in his old age, after all of that, as, as some kind of a, a confession, <laughs> looking back on it and thinking what it could have been. Written from this place of wisdom and regret, like he's saying, kids, learn from me. <laughs> You look at um, Proverbs, he wrote a lot of Proverbs as well. And it's interesting, as you look at Proverbs, he says over and over and over again, my son, my son, my son. My son, keep your way far from the forbidden woman and don't go near the door of her house. These commands are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman and from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Don't desire her beauty in your heart and don't let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. He says this, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? That's Proverbs. Song of Song, on the other hand, doesn't mention sons, but over and over again it talks to daughters, the daughters of Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 7, it says there, I adjure you, I implore you, 
I want you to promise me, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Promise me. He takes a totally different approach with the girls. So instead of giving them these cautionary tales like he does in Proverbs of things going horribly wrong when you go astray, instead this is what he does. He paints them this beautiful picture of the ideal of beautiful love and he wants them to be captivated by this greater vision. So Proverbs is saying, lads, be careful in love. Don't sell yourself short. Otherwise, things are going to go really bad. The Song of Songs says, ladies, be careful in love. Don't sell yourself short because things are meant to be really, really good. You get that? Solomon is holding up this ideal as a way for people to turn away from his folly, what he's done. He's giving them something to aspire to. He's saying, don't settle for any less than this. This is what God intended marriage to be. It's a standard that we need to hear. It's a standard that the whole world needs to hear because we so often, we just settle for one part of the song. A sweet little string of notes, a little melody, just a little bit that we like. But love is a symphony. And it only truly makes sense when you experience the whole song together, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the sweet times. You're going to get that in the Song of Songs. It's not just about the kisses, it's about the commitment. It's not just about the fruit and flowers. It's not just for a moment. The whole song only makes sense as a celebration of permanence. And the kisses are sweet because they promise security. This is a song that the world needs to hear. The world needs this. The world needs us as Christians to love like this so they notice it and go, wow, what have you got? I need to hear about this. I remember as a 19-year-old, or as a teenager, just feeling all the feels of love. (laughs) And songs come on the radio, these love songs, and you're like, my goodness, that is my story right there. Anyone had that? except when Rage Against the Machine came on. Um, But mostly, when the love songs were on, I'm like, that is telling my story. It's because love songs, they leave some space so that um, you're able to enter the song and resonate with these really powerful, universal themes that are being dealt with in the song. Song of Songs is a song. It kind of works the same. You don't get much backstory or detail about the two lovers in the story. And you kind of think, who is, who is she? Who is he? And there's little clues here and there, and you're, and you're trying to grasp hold of who they are, and you never quite get it. But it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and I think that's probably deliberate, because it allows us to enter it, to not stumble over the detail. She is she, and he is he. And that's enough for us to know. And we can, we can enter it and be part of it too. Remember this, it's a song. It's not a historical text, uh, it's not a letter, it's not a creed, it's expressive poetry. So it's, it's going to take you places, it's meant to move you, it's meant to get melodies stuck in your head, to repre- repeat these choruses over and over again, and it's meant to call you to sing along as well. This is meant to be sung, and it's not just for lovers, because we see that in verse 4, others. 
And they say, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. The others. I was talking with Claire about this last night and she thought it was kind of creepy. Like in some kind of horror movie, the others. (laughs) These mysterious others that chime in from time to time who are just kind of sitting in the shadows while these two lovers make their music. It's kind of creepy. (laughs) But um, as you see, as we go through the song, um, these others actually add a really beautiful dimension to the whole thing. And these others, they're probably the daughters of Jerusalem that are mentioned there in in 2 verse 7, the virgins that she keeps referring to. And we stand with them, with the others, and we learn a lot. First of all, we learn about she. We get to meet she. Verse 5. I'm very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. She's dark. <laughs> and back then, that was not a thing to be desired because um, to be dark, to have a tan from having the sun gaze upon you, um, it meant that you were someone that worked, which meant that you were someone of low standing, um, like a servant, and she doesn't want to be tanned. <laughs> she admits this imperfection in herself, but something really interesting. She tells us not to focus on that. Don't look at me. Don't look at the darkness. I'm lovely. She's still lovely. She says this, but just, that's just an interesting little thing. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. So here's her problem. She's been um, working too hard in the sun, and that's why she's tanned. And it's her mother's brothers, her mother's sons, sorry, which is like her stepbrothers. We've got like a Cinderella kind of situation here with the ugly stepbrothers. We've got her working in the vineyard and sweating away and slaving away while they go off to the ball and meet their princess or whatever. And her own vineyard, her body has suffered as she slaved away after others. And you can hear in, it, in there, there's her cry, when will it be my turn? Where's my handsome prince? Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Saying, I don't want to walk around in the sun, shading myself with a veil like a prostitute would. Sweet shepherd boy, I want to rest in your shade where your flocks are in the middle of the day. Where are you? And now we meet he. And he says, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. He's being playful with her, like hard to get. He said, follow in the tracks. Come to me, come to me. And then he drops the ultimate pickup line. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Baby, you're a horse. (laughs) But not not in a bad way. Pharaoh's horses, so like the best, the healthiest looking, like the shiniest looking horses you can find. You're like that kind of horse. But not even just that, you're like a mare amongst the, the stallions that pull the chariots. Just like saying, baby, when I compare you to all the other women in the world, they look pretty mannish. <laughs> and not just that, like um, 
Pharaoh's chariots and their horses, they had these um, like massive headdresses and all these jewels hanging down the sides of them and, and look pretty spectacular. And he goes on, he says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. And he mentions the jewels and the others chime in, like, we'll make you ornaments of gold studded with silver. They're so keen to get involved and to help out. And then she, they're getting excited now, and she gets a little bit racy here. So you've been warned. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. She really likes this guy. She mentions nard. Nard is this really rare, expensive perfume that grew in the foot of the Himalayas, so really hard to get where they were. What she's saying there is what they have is really rare. A sachet of myrrh, henna blossoms. He smells good. He's refreshing. The thought of him is a comfort to her. And this has fired him, fired him up, so he tries another line, and he gets this one a little bit better. He says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Look at you. You're beautiful, my love. Look at you. You're beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. Get this. He's not fussed about her tan. Hasn't mentioned it, hasn't noticed it. Your eyes are doves, sweet, soft, dove-shaped. There's a sense of innocence about it, right? And it's better than calling her a horse. We're at the, the start of the relationship. Um, it would be really inappropriate for him to be describing other more private parts of her body. That comes in chapter four. Don't look at it yet. We've got to prepare you for that. And he's talking about her eyes. It's all above board, right? But there's an intimacy that comes from staring into each other's eyes, right? And they definitely both love what they're seeing. And this attraction between them is magnetic. She, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. It's like they're lying on a picnic rug in the forest. I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. She's lying there in the woods. And she sees all these wildflowers around her and she's in love and she's feeling good. And his admiration of her is having a really positive effect on her. So note this, gentlemen. He says kind and heartfelt things to her and it transforms her. His loving, caring words, pointing out the good in her, really lifts her and transforms her. Little tip. Go use that. Don't be creepy with it, but go and use that. Particularly if you're married, don't hold back your compliments from your wife. She says, I'm a wildflower. I'm pretty, but I'm pretty common. And he's like, no, 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 no. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. And then she jumps on board with it as well. And she says, well, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. You notice how these two, they're going 
for, to great lengths, great poetic lengths, to describe how beautiful this one person is in front of them, how exclusively different they are from everyone else in the world. Everyone else in the world is just a plain old tree or a bramble or a stinky, sweaty horse. And I don't want him. I want you. You are the only one for me. And this, this simple little thing is a key feature of Song of Songs. That this love that is celebrated in Song of Songs is exclusive. One woman and one man, and that's the standard. And it's beautiful. No one else. And there is blessing that comes out of that. She says, with great delight, I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. She's finally in the shade. She's not out there slaving away in the vineyards anymore. She's in the shade, out of the burning sun. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. He's provided her with this safe place in the shade and he's caring for her there. He's tending to her needs there and he's holding her. And it's passionate, but it's also very comforting for her. And this, this part of the song, it's painting a picture here in this picnic scene of the first garden and what it would have been like there in Eden, the way things are meant to be. And in the innocence of exclusive romantic love and marriage, we get a little taste of that garden. So, I want to ask you a question, daughters of Jerusalem. Now that you've seen a little bit of he, what's so good about this guy? What does he have that's so desirable? What can we take from this? What can we learn from this? What's the kind of guy you want? Well, he is a man of good character. It says there in verse 3, your name is oil poured out. Your character, your name is good. The people love it. He's a man of good character. You want that. He has a job. Um, he has a flock to pasture. He's a shepherd. He has a job. That's a good thing. Um, he offers her protection. Follow me. Come in my tracks. He gives her shade. He supports her. His left hand is under, under my head. And he's really gentle with her. Like a dove, like a lily, saying all these sweet words to her, tending to her needs, really in tune with her. And he has eyes only for her. Like a lily among brambles. It's just you and you alone. That's what you want, right? Yeah? You're like, cool. What if I don't find him? <laughs> what if I can't find someone like that? And then all this talk of romance is actually pretty painful. It's a bit of a struggle. Well, here's the gentle, gentle challenge and encouragement for you from the Song of Songs. Is this. If, you, if you're not he or she in this song, then you join the others. You sing along with the others. Look at how the others react. 
because the others are approving. They are loving this love. He mentions jewels and they're off and making jewels. They're so happy to be part of it and they encourage the couple and they're encouraged by the couple. This relationship is bringing them happiness. That's a beautiful thing. But that doesn't easily happen. See, often the way it happens is a couple, couple gets more and more amorous and we start to dry reach and say, get a room, like go away. This is disgusting. But that's not the case here. That's not the case here. These others, uh, people that are reminded of the goodness of life and love, and as they see the joy between these two, he and she, they join it. This couple are to be commended because they're not weirding people out. They're being appropriate and sensitive to others. They're enjoying each other, but they're not weirding others out. The others are to be commended because they're enjoying the couple's joy. There's no envy there. There's no grumbling. Just joy and goodwill to these two people who've been blessed by love. That's massive. The others aren't thinking of their own lack. They're thinking of how they can bless this couple. It's a challenge. When um, my girlfriend broke up with me at the age of 18, it seemed like everywhere I looked, Everywhere I walked, everyone else was a couple. And the last thing I wanted to see was couples, let alone to celebrate them, let alone to make ornaments of gold and silver for them. It really hurt. But these others, these others here, they have things in perspective. As they recognize God's blessing on all of them in the love of he and she. Get this, a healthy, loving couple will be a blessing to those around them. I was talking with um, Jason and with Lauren Crinian this afternoon, and it got me thinking about Jason and Lauren, Lauren and Jason, a very cute couple. And um, I love the way these two obviously delight in each other. And they obviously care for each other lean on each other, build each other up, protect each other. It's really sweet. It's really sweet. And we, we are all blessed by the love they have for each other. My first moment in this church was these two coming towards me and saying, hey, how are you going? Like, and the way they love each other and care for each other, it's a blessing. So Lauren and Jason... I will exalt and rejoice in you. <laughs> you guys, your love is a blessing to me. Amen? Amen. Amen. Find couples like that. Be the others. Encourage them in that. This is the way it's meant to be, right? We're amongst the others. And that's, that's a big thing. But also a sweet thing to embrace. But there is a danger when we open the book of Song of Songs and we start reading is that it gets pretty intoxicating. Like you read this stuff and you see affectionate love really close up and you see how happy they are and you just think, oh man, I want that. I want what they've got. And it can be 
this dangerous trap to want that feeling for ourselves. I mean, that was the story of my youth. <laughs> I fell in love with the idea of being in love. And I didn't even have someone to love. I fell in love before I even had someone to love. And then when we do that, we just make ourselves sick, desperate, worried or foolish in the pursuit of love or that, that state of being in love. But that's getting things the wrong way around. Look at how it happens here. First comes attraction. Finding someone and seeing desirable qualities in them. Being attracted by that. And then this is really important, having that reciprocated. And then having all the people around saying, yeah, this is good recognizing it as good and approving it and encouraging it. And then you, you, this love is recognized and you're cared for and you're cherished. And there, out of that, springs these sweet feelings, right? Not before. You can't just manufacture those sweet feelings. It comes from a place of knowing someone and being known and loved and it being good. And bam, that's where the sweetness happens. So if we're just pining for this feeling we're really being unfair on ourselves. And it can never go that way. She says this, your love is better than wine. Your love, not your kisses, is better. See, she wants his kisses only because she already knows that he loves her so much. Can't get it the wrong way around. And so with that in mind, chapter 2, verse 7, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, promise me this, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Don't get hung up on the feeling when you don't have someone to feel for. Get this, this plea, don't stir up love before it's time. It doesn't come from some grumpy old man or some overbearing parent or some fired up preacher. You know where it comes from? It comes from a young bride. American theologian Doug O'Donnell, he says it really well like this. He says, And this newly married woman comes out of her wedding chamber, love scene after love scene, to tell the young ladies, wait for this. What I'm enjoying, wait for this. It is so worth it. Cool your passions now and arouse them later when it's time. But right now, wait for this. It is so worth it. You get that? It's not coming from anyone grumpy. It's coming from someone who's experienced and saying, this is worth it. It's not worth jumping the gun on this. Well, here's a question. This is the question you should always ask when you read a text, particularly when you're preaching from one. Where's Jesus in all of this? Where's God in all of this? Because the whole passage, God, is not mentioned once. Did you notice that? In fact, the whole book, God is mentioned one time in chapter 8. Where's God in this? And here's where you find God in this. Look at how beautiful the love is between she and he. 
That's the work of God. He's the one orchestrating and blessing this. His fingerprints are all over this. And they're just following his blueprint and they're finding joy in it. God is at work in this romance. So we mustn't, we mustn't make the mistake that romance is something that God's not interested in or God is embarrassed by. He loves it. He invented it. Romance becomes a dangerous place as soon as we push God out of it. But romance gets better and better the more we recognize God's hand in it and seek his leading in it. He's right there. He's in it. But you keep looking and you'll find hints of Jesus Christ too. Let me show you. Go back to the the first stanza. Here is she. And she's saying, at last, her longing is finally fulfilled. See that, draw me after you, that let us run. It's a, at last. And those are sweet feelings. But it's a shadow of, of what is to come. Ephesians 5, it talks about the church as the bride, the loved one, and Jesus as the groom, the beloved. And it's not a sexual thing. It transcends that. The Jesus, Jesus in the church isn't a copy of the original blueprint, which is marriage. <laughs> marriage is a copy of the original blueprint that is Christ and his people together at last. Marriage, romance, is meant to point us to the beauty of the love of Christ. Get that? So whether we are the lovers, enjoying the sweetness of attraction and momentary satisfaction, or whether we're the others, looking on and taking joy in their love, the reason the love of two people can bring joy to them, to us, is that it points to the love of Jesus Christ for us. At last, this is what we want. Let's run. Draw us with you, Lord. Lord Jesus, bring us. Bring us into the King's chambers, into your house where we will dwell with you forever in perfect love because we are sweating and getting sunburned out in the vineyard of life and we just want to be there with you forever. Sweet shepherd, bring us to where you pasture your flock. That's where we want to be, that we might rest in your shadow and be safe in your embrace and enjoy you forever. You get that? That, that is the at last of our soul. That's what we're yearning for. And any romantic love fades in comparison to the love of Jesus Christ for us and our satisfaction in Him and what He will give us. Romance is good, but it's not that good. So with this greater love in mind, this love and this promise this promise of love in mind, keeping that in mind, we embrace love when it comes. To us, to others, embrace love, but always with an eye for the future. Let your love be a vision of that future love and let Jesus' love sustain you now. Let his love be the melody of your love song Wherever you see godly romance, 
let it remind you of how much Jesus Christ loves you. When you see the delight in their eyes as they look at each other and the way they speak tenderly to each other and sacrifice for each other and lay down their lives for each other, let it remind you, Jesus, that's how he thinks of me. That's how he loves me. And let it produce in you an even greater longing for that moment when you finally run to him forever. So whether or not you get to that point of running off to someone's chambers, we have a love that transforms us now. And it has us hoping for this great at last that we are running to. Let's run. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for love. Heavenly Father, we need to confess our sin. That we have idolized love and we have spurned love, either making it everything or making it nothing and making it a curse. And God, that is not the way it is. It is a gift. God, we thank you for romance. And the blessing that it is to us, the blessing that it is to two people, she and he, and the blessing it is to everyone around them. Heavenly Father, please, let us always be reminded of the love of Jesus Christ, that he loves us completely and forever and miraculously, exclusively. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and his love. And Holy Spirit, please change our hearts as we live this life in the sun, in the vineyard, struggling away. Pray for those who are yearning for love. That first of all, we'll find it in you. That you will guard us, that you will guard these daughters of Jerusalem, these sons of Jerusalem from stirring up love before it's time but we would find all our satisfaction in you and in the love of Jesus Christ. That we would be able to display to this world a better love, a beautiful love, your love. In Jesus' name, amen.